Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. On today's podcast, we're talking about award-winning journalism and specifically stories that recently won prizes in the Society of Professional Journalists contest that uh, were Oklahoma Watch stories, uh, mostly from 2020 during the contest period. So we're going to go back and look at those stories with the advantage of hindsight and talk a little bit about how each of those stories looks uh, with the perspective of a rearview mirror and also what made them award-winning stories and uh, why they were particularly good journalism. First up today is reporter Paul Monies. He wrote a story in August of 2020 talking about how Oklahoma diminished the role of its state epidemiologist at the very height of the pandemic. That story won first place in that recent contest for general news reporting. Paul, what did you learn doing this story, and why was it important to publish it at the time? So this story came out in what we'd now consider the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic. But, of course, we didn't know that at the time. Uh, We thought we'd be able to tell a story of the first part of the Oklahoma response to the role of the state epidemiologist, which up until then had been a fairly prominent role in a position at State Health Department. In fact, the state epidemiologist was one of just four deputy commissioners at the health department prior to the pandemic. Now, from the first positive cases in March 2020 to August, Oklahoma had three state epidemiologists. The first epidemiologist, Lawrence Burnsett, had been in the role for several years prior to the pandemic, but he was reassigned by leaders at the health department in the first couple of months. Uh, That led to the health department then contracting out the position to Aaron Wendelbow, a professor at OU's College of Public Health. Now, when his contract ran out in the summer of 2020, the state then turned to Jared Taylor, who came from Oklahoma State University. It was unusual to go through so many state epidemiologists so quickly, and I interviewed a former state epidemiologist, Christy Bradley, to get her perspective on the situation. I also talked to national groups who provided some additional context to the story, and they said the pandemic was contributing to burnout in the epidemiologist's profession, but it was still unusual for Oklahoma to push the job way down the health department's organizational chart. Well, Paul, what's the latest on the state epidemiologist's role in the years since this story was published? Well, we're now on yet another state epidemiologist, uh, Julianne Stone. She took over in April this year after Jared Taylor took on a new role at the health department as chief science officer. Uh, Stone was a deputy epidemiologist, but also had previously worked as an infection prevention manager at the Integris hospital system. Now, I will note that the health department has made their state epidemiologists available to the media to answer questions, which is a big change from the early months of the pandemic. Uh, Much of the state's early communications about the coronavirus came through Governor Kevin Stitt or the high-level cabinet secretaries that were on his coronavirus uh, task force. We're now some 20 months into the pandemic. How has Governor Stitt's response changed leading up to this past summer's surge of the Delta variant? Well, at this point, Governor Stitt has taken a a very hands-off approach to the management of the virus. Um, That's been true even in the summer as the Delta variant caused another spike in hospitalizations and deaths. 
uh, Stitt has largely deferred to his leaders at the health department for the latest response, although he's made it clear that he's still the one making the final calls on major policy decisions. Now contrast that to the first six months of the pandemic. It feels like several lifetimes ago, but the state was careening from crisis to crisis with its response. Uh, Stitt and his task force members wanted to project an image of fixing problems as they arose, everything from dealing with uh, a shortage of personal protective equipment to outbreaks in nursing homes and prisons to the seemingly endless debates over mask mandates. Um, that kind of all-hands-on-deck response was warranted in most situations because we were dealing with not only a public health crisis, but a real economic one, too. Uh, consumer demand had cratered, and business, businesses were reeling from the effects of all that, too. The state's health commissioner resigned recently. Who took over, and what will be some of the challenges of the new health commissioner uh, that uh, Governor Stitt will, will be choosing? That's right. Uh, the Commissioner Lance Fry resigned a couple weeks ago, uh, saying the state had entered a new phase of pandemic response as the Delta variant declined from its recent highs for both cases uh, and ICU hospitalizations. Um, still, his resignation came just days after it was reported his health department had signed off on a federal legal settlement that would allow a new non-binary gender designation on birth certificates. Um, now, since then, longtime Deputy Commissioner Keith Reed uh, is now the Interim Health Commissioner. He's working out a new organizational chart um, after a couple of other departures at the top, including the health department's chief operating officer and chief financial officer. And just this week, the department's posted a job opening uh, for the director of the public health lab, which completed a, a sometimes controversial move to Stillwater earlier this year. Now, Reed has said he's quite comfortable being an interim commissioner until a permanent commissioner can be appointed by Governor Stitt uh, and goes through a confirmation vote in the Senate. Um, there's really no timeline on when that commissioner might be appointed. But it's also interesting to note that Reed will be the seventh interim or full health commissioner in the last four years. Wow, it's a lot of turnover. Paul, thank you. And listeners can read all of Paul's coverage of COVID and the health department and the machinations over there at OklahomaWatch.org. The Institute for Nonprofit News honored Oklahoma Watch reporter Whitney Bryan with its Insight Award for her investigative story on an Alva, Oklahoma nursing home's battle to protect its vulnerable residents from COVID-19. That story, published early this year, chronicled the plight of the Beatles Nursing Home, a family-owned operation up in Alva. Whitney, where did the idea for that story come from? Well, Ted, when I was reporting on COVID-19 affecting nursing home residents and staff across the state, I heard a story about a woman out in Alva, a resident there, who took a job cleaning a nursing home just to be inside the facility where her mother was living. Um, she was retired. She was enjoying her retirement. And then when COVID shut down the nursing home and she was not able to get inside and see her mother, she literally gave up her retirement um, and, and started cleaning full time just so she could be near her mom. And, you know, it really struck me the desperation that families like that were feeling at the time, not being able to see and touch and interact with and check up on um, their very vulnerable family members. So I visited with her at the nursing home in Alva, and that's when I met their uh, director of nursing, Dana. Um, and we ended up telling Dana's story about her battle to protect and, and keep these residents alive. 
You know, I think a lot of times the very best stories that get published, the ones that win awards like this are those that the reporter took a, a personal interest in, that, that weren't just another daily story on the beat, but, but that really meant something to the person writing them. Why was it important to you to tell this particular story? Well, like I said, I was really moved by just the lengths to which these people were willing to go in order to be near their loved ones. I think we could all relate to that at that time, whether we were talking about, you know, family members in a nursing home or just loved ones that we were, you know, unable to see during that time because we feared that we might make them sick. Um, You know, I had grandparents that I was staying away from because I was concerned that I might, you know, infect them with COVID-19. And, you know, as a journalist too, I'm constantly asking myself, where's the harm? Um, If there's no harm, there's probably no story involved um, in the work that I'm doing. And so in this case, the harm was really evident. People were literally dying and getting serious, you know, life-threatening infections. And so that sort of tenant of journalism was easily answered in this story. And I knew right away that this would be an important one to tell people. You know, one other thing I think a lot about as a journalist at Oklahoma Watch, I do multimedia journalism, which means I usually have a camera in my hand. And another thing I'm constantly thinking is, can I take our readers somewhere that they can't go otherwise. And in this case, again, you know, family members weren't even being allowed into nursing homes. So I really felt like this was a public service to our readers to be able to take them inside one of these facilities um, at the height of the pandemic. Well, that brings up a good point. Uh, Editor Mike Sherman and I were just talking yesterday about the importance of going in person to do a story because you you see things and hear things and experience things that um, add a lot to a story that you wouldn't get if you uh, stayed in the office and, and reported it over the phone, for example, right? And so uh, Alva's not right next door for you, um, it, but you were able to drive to Alva, visit the nursing home, and were able to get inside. What what precautions did you take while you were there, and what was What was it like inside that nursing home at that time? Well, uh, we started with a lot of conversations um, inside of Oklahoma Watch about the precautions and the risk to to going into the nursing home. Um, And I also had a lot of conversations with um, the director of nursing and uh, the owners there at the nursing home um, to make sure that we were doing everything we possibly could to protect the residents there, the staff there, and to protect me, you know, going into the facility. So I was tested that morning before I was allowed to step foot in the door. Um, they did a rapid test on me outside the facility. Um, it was actually a really nice day. So we sat outside and chatted for about 15 minutes um, while I waited on my test result. And that was obviously negative. So then I went inside, stopped right at the front door where they sprayed the bottom of my shoes with Lysol, um, doused uh, my hands in hand sanitizer, and they checked my temperature and asked me a series of questions about whether it had a sore throat or a fever recently and that kind of thing. And then the entire time I was inside the facility, um, I was wearing a gown to protect my clothing. Um, I had on gloves for a portion of that time, um, but I was using my camera a lot. So that was really difficult to keep on. Um, And I wore a mask 
the entire time I was in the facility. So we, we took every precaution we possibly could. You know, once I was inside, um, the first word that comes to mind to describe it is just sad. Um, it was really heartbreaking. It was quiet, um, almost eerily quiet. Um, staff were moving around quickly, um, but could only stay in certain areas of the home. It was quarantined off in three different wings. Uh, residents were quarantined in their rooms. They could only leave the room um, in one section of the nursing home because no one there had been exposed to COVID at that point. But all the other residents who had been exposed in some way were, were stuck in their rooms all day. Um, and I talked to some of those residents who basically said, you know, we were so desperate for our activities to come back for social life, to see our families, to see our loved ones again, we will take our chances with COVID just to have a little bit more freedom. It was really a, um, a devastating scene at the nursing home that day. Well, here we are 10 or 11 months uh, since that story was published. How have things changed? Things have changed a lot um, at the nursing home in Alva. In fact, I just spoke to Dana. She's the director of nursing, um, who's really the main character of this story. I talked to her today, um, and she sent me their numbers for vaccinations, which really were the big turning point for the nursing home. Um, she told me that 90% of their staff are currently vaccinated, which has been a year-long battle nearly for them. Um, they did not have everyone on board in the beginning but they have worked really hard to get staff vaccinated. So they're at 90% now and 98% of their residents are vaccinated. So there's no COVID in the nursing home currently and the vaccines are keeping people from um, having, uh, you know, worse infections, uh, worse symptoms, really extreme cases of COVID um, if it does come into the nursing home. So they've allowed visitation to start up again. They're doing activities again. Um, um, residents are allowed to move around the nursing home. And overall, it's just a much better, healthier, um, happier place for the staff, the residents, and their families. Well, great. And listeners can read uh, Whitney's story about the Beatles Nursing Home in Alva and all of her other work at OklahomaWatch.org. Jennifer Palmer covers education for Oklahoma Watch, and her five-month investigation into Epic Charter School's college admission rates found that fewer than one in five 2019 graduates enrolled in a public Oklahoma college or university last fall. She found that its rate was lower than rates for all of the state's 10 largest school districts. And she found that Epic reported far more high school graduates than those 10 districts, but far fewer students enrolled in a state college. That 2020 story, which Jennifer reported with colleague Whitney Bryan, was recently honored by the Oklahoma Society of Professional Journalists with first place in the special report enterprise category. Jennifer, what impact did the story have, and has Epic made any changes since it was published? So Epic has been undergoing a lot of changes since 2020. Um, you know, directly related to college going, they have implemented some new programs and have really stepped up um, to do more, I think, to... Um, you know, prepare their uh, high school kids uh, for college. 
Um, I don't know what their college-going rates are at this point. It took uh, many months to uh, contact every college and university in the state to get those. Um, the state regents does publish that data, but um, right now 2019 is the most current they have. And of course we did this and we got 2020. Um, do we have any idea if their college admission rates have improved since, since you did the story? Well, not exactly. The main thing that's changed uh, when it comes to college admission is most, uh, I think all basically colleges and universities in Oklahoma are now test optional. And from the graduates that we talked to that went to Epic, that ACT score was one of their biggest hurdles. Um, you know, many of them scored very, very low. Um, Epic's average composite for 2019 is didn't really improve in 2020, still about 16.5. Um, the state average went up a point uh, to 19.7, I believe, um, and, and Epic stayed stagnant. So that, that was a big hurdle. Um, but with so many test optional now, I, I think those, um, those kids would have more opportunity to at least apply. So it, I'm curious about this. Uh, of the other, of those 10 largest districts that you compared Epic's admission rates to in that story. Are are the other 10 districts all traditional brick and mortar schools or any of them virtual? None of them are virtual. No, um, we did compare them to um, some of the other virtuals, but um, we felt like a more fair comparison would be to the population size, which is- Because of the size of the district? Right. Is there, um, is there sort of a wild card in there with, with Epic? being a non-traditional school? Does it attract a, a different kind of student than the traditional districts uh, attract? Would, would that affect their college admission rates or their ACT scores? I mean, that's certainly something that, um, you know, Epic has said. Uh, there has been, uh, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to look into this story and that got me interested in it was we'd heard for many years about their, um, you know, their low graduation rate. And then at the same time, we see these videos, you know, live stream of their graduation. And it's a huge event with thousands of kids. And, and we just thought, okay, if, this many kids are getting a diploma, like what's next for them? You know, we had already investigated many other aspects of Epic and we wanted to see how well prepared those, those kids really were. Um, you know, one of the more surprising things that I found through reporting that story um, was just how quickly some of the students were flying through the uh, high school curriculum at Epic. And we ended up doing um, a separate story more on um, just the ability to, um, you know, with an online curriculum, find answers very quickly and, and, and breeze through it without really learning much. It, were you able to find a correlation then between um, using an online curriculum and the college admissions? Or is that just sort of an intuitive, a seems like it probably equals B. You know, some of the students we talked to did say they felt like it it prepared them better because many of their college courses were online. But these same students told us, you know, they had never taken a science lab. Uh, they were never required to read a novel in English. Certain things like this that were major red flags for us um, and pointed to the quality of, of the education they were getting. 
What um, you, you've done a lot of stories about Epic over the last several years. Uh, what's the latest? What's on the horizon for Epic now? So Epic's undergone a lot of major changes. Of course, you know, this story came out um, pre-pandemic, um, if we can even remember <laughs> what that was like. Um, and, and you know, they have, um, the audit came out later that year. That kind of snowballed many things, um, a grand jury investigation, um, the statewide virtual charter school board, you know, moved to revoke their charter. And eventually that um, was, uh, they came to an agreement and were able to um, continue to have that school and, and to authorize that school. Um, as part of that agreement, you know, Epic's school board has had a complete turnover. They've got a new chair, um, all new board members. They have severed all ties with their management company. And that has been, you know, a major change for them uh, for a long time. The management company, you know, handled all the day-to-day -day things um, and, and caused some issues for them. Is the uh, Epic model reflective of other virtual schools doing business in the state or, or is there a difference? Epic's obviously much bigger than any of the other ones, but do most of them seem to kind of follow the same model or, or are there big differences there? I think there are big differences. I mean, the, the size is one, absolutely. Epic has a lot of unique aspects. The Learning Fund is a big one. I think only one other virtual school has a similar, um, you know, uh, a thing to the Learning Fund. And that has been a topic of investigation of the, you know, state auditors and has, has caused a lot of headaches for the school. Um, you know, they are no longer a for-profit. Most of our virtual schools in Oklahoma are connected to a for-profit and they're more of the national chains. Okay, great. Thanks, Jennifer. You can read all of Jennifer's education coverage, including all of her epic charter school stories at oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch. You can find those stories on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. Oklahoma Watch is a 501c3 nonprofit public charity. We rely on grants and donations from those who read us and benefit from our work. During the months of November and December, we're eligible for a dollar-for-dollar dollar match for all donations to Oklahoma Watch. If you'd care to participate and help us get that $10,000 in matching funds, please visit oklahomawatch.org and click on the Donate tab at the top of the page.